we've just started a brand new series on Acts. Last week we started it, and the title of the series is Unconquered. Now, Pastor Paul suggested a subtitle of A Shameless Seminal Ripoff, um, but we decided to go with another one. We decided to go with From One Life to All Nations. So it's Unconquered, From One Life to All Nations. And before we start, I just want to call your attention again to the study guide, which was developed as a kind of companion volume for the series. Uh, we, we realize that there are, there are some that want to just take an additional and deeper dive into the material that we're presenting every Sunday morning uh, in the context of this series. Also in here, there are questions that you can go through for your devotions, there are questions that you can go through in the fellowship group. There's a host of other pieces of material. I really want to commend it to you, and you really don't want to be in this series without this tool. So we passed them out last week. If you didn't get one, you can just stop at the Connect desk out in the lobby after the service today. Okay, let's open up our, our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse... 12. The title of this morning's message is The Pause with a Purpose. The Pause with a Purpose. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, the, in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and... Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen 
to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray. Lord, your word comes to us as a lamp unto our feet, as a light to our path. And we pray today that would be the effect, that would be our experience, that would be the outcome, that you would smile upon us as we study your word and bring light, bring guidance, bring clarity, bring blessing. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's return for a second to that climactic moment from last week when Jesus had uttered his last earthly words and was lifted up and swallowed by a cloud. And think about that for a second if you're one of the disciples. The one who called them, the one who walked with them for three years, the one who raised the dead and walked on water, the one, one who himself was raised from the dead and, and resurrected is now gone. I think it was a fragile moment, a very tenuous time. I mean, they hoped he might restore the kingdom. They even asked him, will it be this time that you restore the kingdom to Israel? And now he's gone. He's left them. And he told them to just hang around in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit, and then he disappeared. He was gone up in the clouds. In fact, they couldn't believe it. They stood there so transfixed, so overcome by shock, that angels had to actually appear to intervene and say, guys, why are you looking up there? We're, we're done here, but your guy's going to return to the very spot that he's left from. I wonder what life looked like as they left there and walked down the mountain. I mean, I can imagine they were, they were tempted to remain on the mountain. I mean, the angel said he would someday touch down at the very place that he left them. Isn't that like a tip from heaven? Maybe they should just chill right there for a while. But then there was that whole, you know, global mission thing. How could so few accomplish so much and go to the entire world? They didn't get it. I mean, it's, it's not like they were born and bred for this moment in time. They were uneducated men. They were fishermen. They were of the lower class, not exactly your best and your brightest. Except for Judas. He was pretty bright. But he was lost. He was exposed as a traitor. He committed suicide. And they didn't. They didn't get that at all. Jesus loved him, but Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. No one knew what to do with that. And so now here they are. It's all happened. The Savior was gone. The people were gone. The power was gone. The glue that held them together as a team, gone. And all they had left was this order that came to them from the Savior, don't depart from Jerusalem. And all they needed to do 
was wait. But I think to be fair and to be accurate, this, this was not a moment of misery or of anguish because they knew the one who had promised. They knew the risen king had made the promise and that he would uphold his word. I mean, if you have a relative with who has incalculable wealth, who has always had this sense of unceasing love for you and this impeccable integrity who always kept his word. And he said to you, listen, I've got a life-transforming, world-changing gift, and I'm giving it to you. But then he orders you, but wait here until it arrives. Your question is not, will it really happen? I mean, this is a person in whom you have unshakable confidence in his ability to deliver for you because he's always delivered in the past. So the question is not, will it really happen? The question is, what's with the delay? Why am I waiting here for this gift? What's the point of waiting? I think that was the question on their mind. I think that was the question that they had rolling over as they walked three quarters of a mile from Mount Olive into Jerusalem. What's the point of waiting? Is there some kind of purpose in this pause, in this period between his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit? What's all this about? Ten days. What's it all about? Is there purpose in the pause. Now, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What does this waiting signify? And I've got three different points I want to cover with you. First, the waiting meant praying. The waiting meant praying. So we learn as we, as we continue to read on in Acts chapter 1 that they traveled a Sabbath day journey back to Jerusalem. By the way, a Sabbath day journey is the maximum distance that a Jewish person could travel on the Sabbath without working, without it qualifying as work. So that was estimated to be around three-quarters of a mile. So they traveled three-quarters of a mile, got in Jerusalem, went up to the upper room, and this is where verse 14 picks up, and all these were, all these with one accord were, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, I want to talk a little bit about praying here. And I want to give you a a few quick thoughts on what this praying, in particular, represents right now at that time. First, their waiting was active, not passive. Their waiting was active, not passive. In other words, the disciples didn't return to relax. Which, by the way, I found astounding in light of the emotional and physical rigor of the last 40 days of all they had just been through over the last couple of months. I mean, think about it. They survived the horror of a crucifixion, fell into the pit of despair as a result of seeing God himself crucified, bounced up to heaven when they saw him resurrected from the dead, only to roll into a 40-day graduate-level mind dump from the creator of the universe teaching them, only to then have him swept up again back into the clouds. I mean, can you say emotionally exhausting? Can you say physically shattered? These guys were, I'm certain, spent. But as you read Acts chapter 1, you don't get any of that. 
You don't, that's not inferred. That's not indicated anywhere. In fact, Luke reports that they returned and became, and I love the use of this word, devoted. They devoted themselves to prayer. So their waiting was active, not passive. They were called to wait, but that was an active waiting. Secondly, their prayer was together and not alone. You know, sometimes after we encounter very tumultuous things, we want to kind of seek the shelter of solitude. We want to be by ourselves. I mean, that's me. I, you know, I get, I get pounded by some kind of problem or I have the privilege of being poured out for people. And I, I just want to retreat a little bit. I just want to get alone sometimes. And you might be like that as well. We want to disconnect for some me time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a very human thing. But, but the point that I'm making here is that the turmoil that they had and the unanswered questions that they encountered for some reason didn't seem to fragment them. But on the contrary, it glued them together and sent them to God. It sent them to God. So their waiting was passive, was, was active, not passive. Their, their prayer was together, not alone. And lastly, their waiting was focused, not distracted. And distracted is a little different than passive, than that first sub-point I make. Because when we, we can be very busy and, and still be distracted. Distracted means that we're busy with the wrong things. And I think we can be particularly vulnerable to distraction when we are waiting. And so I'm so convicted by their example where they're waiting, but they're very focused. They're together. They're praying. They're pouring their hearts out to God. See, their practice was to pray while they wait. What do you do while you wait? Let me ask you that. What do you do when you're just in a position that you have to wait? They're called to wait. They pray. I mean, we're called to Mine is like I pull out my cell phone uh, and I begin to get to work. So I'm at Starbucks standing in line. I'm checking my Facebook I'm checking Twitter. I'm tweeting out, standing in line in Starbucks so that my network knows this breaking news that I'm ordering a Solo Grande sugar-free vanilla, extra hot, no water chai. By the way, I have a mission in life to masculinize chai tea. And so join my movement because in a couple of years, you're going to have advertisements on TV with NFL players drinking chai. You'll know where it started. Right here, right here. See, the disciples' time of waiting didn't render them passive, didn't render them distracted. The disciples' time of waiting moved them in a direction towards God, moved them immediately towards praying. Now, if you're interested in applying this point, I have two different options for you, and and I hope you select both of them. First option is, that we have a 24-hour prayer vigil that we are launching on September 22nd, about eight days from now. It's going to begin at 7 a.m. on the 22nd, and it's going to go for 24 hours through 7 a.m. on the 23rd. I want to, I want to encourage you in, in the way that you're thinking about this. This is not just a random activity that we're throwing at the church in order to have something to apply to the point of prayer. I know, let's do a vigil. Nobody will know what a vigil is. 
And so it'll sound really spiritual, so let's just do that because that'll create activity. No, here's the point. We need God. We need God in a unique way. We need God in the context of this series. We believe God wants to move, and we're trusting that he's going to move through the faithful prayers of God's people. Your leaders have a distinct sense. We possess a distinct sense that we believe is born of God, that God wants to move, not just in an abstract way, not just in a corporate way on all of us, but he wants each one of us to gain something distinct from this series, some specific way God wants to move and use each of us in this series. And so we want to pray into that. We want to apply this verse. We want to We want to have purpose in the pause in the same way the disciples did. So that's one application. Here's a second one. As you walked in this morning, there was a One Life card on your chair. Now, you may recall last week that we talked a little bit about the the One Life idea and that we're taking a different approach with this series than what can customarily be taken in the context of teaching on Acts. In other words, rather than focusing on the unreached people groups, or rather than focusing on calling for a a crusade. And all of those things are legitimate and and good things. But what we said is, we're going to limit our vision to just one person. We believe in the nations, we believe in the world, we believe in taking the gospel. But rather than focusing there, we're going to look at just one person that God is calling each and every one of us to reach. And then we're going to put their name on our card, under their name, under our name, full name on one side, and then just just the first name on the other side. And then ultimately, for the prayer vigil, we're going to post these on the wall so everybody will only see the first name. And we're going to pray. And we're going to cry out to God. And we're going to ask God to move. And you know what's going to happen? As a result of those prayers and as a result of this series and as a result of us as a people applying ourselves, there's going to be fresh testimonies that spring forth in the months ahead of people encountering God because the people of God are praying in the pause. So you can fill this out today and you can, you can drop it in the basket on your way out. Ushers will have them. You can t- hold on to this, continue to pray through the next week, drop it in next week. It's available for you either way. So first point is waiting meant praying. Waiting meant praying. Point two, waiting meant translating Judas. Waiting meant translating Judas. Now it's important for us to understand that the first point on prayer is important because of what follows in verse 15 is a direct result of verse 14. In other words, We're going to read, beginning in verse 15, that Peter stands up and begins to declare certain passages that apply to Judas. But he only arrives at that because of verse 14, the people of God being together, them praying, and direction and clarity emerging from that. So direction, and this is what I want you to hear, direction follows the prayers of those who wait. Direction follows the prayers of of those who wait. So as a result of this united prayer, some dramatic things begin to take place. And from the standpoint of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, this is part of the purpose of this pause in Acts chapter 1. Because God had to accomplish two different things among his people 
that were assembled among the 120. He had to accomplish two different things before the Holy Spirit was poured out. First, the people had to identify the problem of Judas. And secondly, the people had to interpret the problem of Judas. So identify the problem of Judas, interpret the problem of Judas. Now let's talk first about identifying the problem of Judas. One of the most mind-boggling features of the gospel story is the fact that Christ, the living God who walked on earth, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, Christ was betrayed by one of those that he chose. And this created two dilemmas for the church that had not yet been formed. One was a theological dilemma. The other was an emotional dilemma. The theological dilemma was, listen very carefully, I'm going to take my time on this. They needed a 12th apostle because through the prayers that they prayed and through the 40-day crash course that they had with the risen Savior, they began to understand that part of God's plan was to restore the kingdom to Israel. Remember what the question they asked in verse 6? Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? One of the answers to that, part of the answer to that is, is yes, I am doing that. And so they began to realize, they began to understand that part of God's plan was to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel. But that didn't mean land and the Jews the way that it did in the Old Testament. In fact, there was an entire new interpretation to Israel that was coming as a result of the Spirit of God being poured out. It meant that Israel would become the church and the 12 apostles would represent the 12 tribes and become the foundation of the church. So they had a problem. They needed 12 apostles to represent the 12 tribes. They only had 11. They needed a 12. I'm talking about capital A apostle. Somebody that qualified according to verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. They're saying, we need somebody who's been here since John the Baptist. We need somebody who's been with us the whole time. And we need somebody who's witnessed the resurrection. And that's part of what qualified for an apostle back then. One of the reasons why that was necessary is because theologically, the role of the apostle would continue through time and through eternity. And I think of Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus said, In the new world, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, he refers to the 12 foundation stones within the temple. So the 12 had to be reconstituted because it was ordained by God that 12 moved in to the future. They needed a replacement for Judas to complete the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, the foundation of the church, apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 
So I hope that by explaining that, that makes the title even clear, title of our message even clearer now, because this pause had a very significant purpose that God had to accomplish among the people in order to set the stage for the church, for the Spirit to come and the church to be born. So that's identifying the problem of Judas. Now let's look at interpreting the problem of Judas. So let's read again in beginning in verse 16. Brothers, this is Peter standing and speaking. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested. He goes on to say he was numbered among us. He was allotted his share. He, fell, he, he bought a field, fell headlong, committed suicide. Bowels gushed out because it was written in Psalm, I think it was 106, no, 69 and 109. May his camp become desolate and there be no one to dwell in it. And then again, let another take his place. So what happens is the disciples come together. They begin to pray. And in the process of that, they begin to study the word of God again. And through, stu- through prayer and studying the word of God, God shows them the Psalms and shows them Psalm 69 and 109. And, this, and God speaks to them and says, Judas was the application of these passages. So it's right there that they begin to understand that this, this Judas thing that has so confounded them, this Judas thing was no accident whatsoever. Look at verse 16 again. Brothers, this is, he comes right out of the gate saying this. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, this is fascinating because you're going to wonder, why did God spend so much time in Acts chapter 1 talking about all this Judas stuff? This is part of the reason. God wanted us to understand, wanted them to understand that even Judas had a purpose. And that's a mind-numbing thought. When you think about it, the most atrocious, the most scandalous act in human history, the betrayal of the Christ, according to what, now what they're learning, is that it happened by God's, and according to God's, unconquered plan. That part of their story that just made no sense. Do you have any part of your story like that? Just something that makes no sense. It just defies interpretation. It dogs you day and night. That's what Judas was for them. They couldn't get it. They didn't understand it because they were there when he came into the group. They know how Jesus treated him. They know how he loved him, how he served Judas, how he sent Judas, how he cried for Judas. And still, Judas had betrayed him. And by the way, Judas had betrayed them as well. But as they went, as they came together and they went to God and they began to pray to God and study God's word, God began to bring perspective and they began to understand that God had actually ordained the worst part of their story to use it for his glory. I mean, think about that. And in fact, think about that. The next time your mind is spinning nonstop over some hurt or some betrayal or even some treachery that you have experienced, that if God could take 
what happened with Judas. And he could twist it around for his glory. It may be. It may be that God could take the worst part of your story and that person that you tend to get fixated on and he can use it for his glory and for your good as well. See, what I'm trying to say is there is purpose in the pause because God is at work actively helping them, helping them to understand that they have what they need to move forward. Here's the interpretation that you lack. Here's the unity that you need. I'm setting the stage because there's a plan behind your waiting. Now this passage is first and primarily about the disciples waiting for the promise and waiting for the Spirit to come. But I think it, it also speaks to us right where we are. It speaks to us in those places where we too live in an Acts 1 moment. It, it seems like between two events with God, God has left and the Spirit is coming and we're stuck in between that, not knowing what's going on. This gap that we live in between the providence of God and the promise of God, this unfulfilled period where there is a promise, but it remains unfulfilled, and we don't know what to do. So maybe, maybe that's where you are right now. You're feeling pressure all around you. Work has never been crazier. In fact, it's creating conflict in your marriage, conflict at home. In fact, you haven't felt this, this, this pressed in years, and you haven't felt peace with God in months. You're not sleeping. Feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulder. Maybe God wants to, to give you a promise that you can treasure in the days ahead. And I'm thinking specifically of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where, where Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You need rest. And God wants to give you rest. But you're in Acts chapter 1 right now before the fulfillment of the promise. Maybe it's some complexity that's just kind of broken into your life that utterly confounds you. Maybe it's the Judas experience. Or maybe it's, it's like Jesus, gone. Somebody close to you, gone. Your life has changed. It's completely turned over because this person was always a part of it. Now they're completely gone. Or maybe it's some other kind of of confounding complexity that just seems dark and purposeless. God wants to remind us all this morning of his promise from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Maybe for you, it's this one life thing. You know, maybe... Maybe the person that you're thinking of for your one life has actually been your one life for years. You've been investing in them for years. And to be honest, you've seen no change whatsoever, no fruit whatsoever. Maybe that's, maybe that's your child. Maybe that's your parent, a neighbor, a friend, a, a sibling, somebody that you love. And, and, and you don't know what to do because nothing seems to work. Well, maybe God wants to breathe life into you this morning through the promise of Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not 
give up. At the proper time, a harvest is guaranteed if we do not give up. Listen, do you have promises you're waiting for? We all do. Like the disciples, we may live in the gap between God's providence and his promise, but God wants us to know there is purpose in that pause in the same way there was for the disciples. So waiting means translating that experience of Judas. Waiting meant translating Judas. And my third and last point is waiting meant appointing leadership. Waiting meant appointing leadership. So the disciples had to identify the problem of Judas. They had to interpret the problem of Judas. But then they had to resolve the problem of Judas. And they do so by examining those among them that fit the qualifications that I read earlier from verses 21 and 22. And then they put forward a slate of two. They put forward Matthias and then Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. I don't know how that works. Maybe the reason he was kicked out is because he just couldn't get his name straight. I'm jo- well, no, I'm Matthias. No, I'm, I'm Barsabbas. No, I'm Justice. No, you know, we're going to go with Matthias, okay? You just take your names. And... Ch- check out the first words in verse 24. And what they did was they prayed. Here it is again, that first point. They prayed. And then they drew lots, and Matthias was chosen. Now, just a quick, little, couple of quick thoughts on this idea of drawing, drawing lots. Though drawing lots was done a few times in the Old Testament, this is actually the last time we see it done in Scripture. The reason it's the last time we see it done in Scripture is because in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes, and when the Spirit of God comes, He dwells within us, He leads us, he guides us, he speaks to us. Direction comes from him. So we shouldn't be casting lots anymore. If there are any ladies here who are thinking about deciding a husband this afternoon by flipping a coin, should it be Barsabbas or should it be Matthias? I don't know. No, see, we have the Spirit of God within us. And so there's a whole new way that direction comes as a result of the coming of the Spirit. Secondly, there's a couple thoughts on drawing lots. Judas, listen, Judas is replaced, not because of his death, but because of his apostasy. Now, don't be afraid of that word. Apostasy just means somebody that falls away from Jesus Christ. He is, he is replaced, not because of his death, but because of his apostasy. And I can say that Because later on in Acts, James, another one of the apostles, dies, and he's never replaced. So the book of Acts does not support this idea of an apostolic succession. In fact, the only succession that we see in the book of Acts, the only succession we see in the New Testament, is the succession of the gospel from one generation to the next. A couple of thoughts on casting lots. Here's the last one. For the apostles, for the apostles, Drawing lots was actually an act of trusting God's sovereignty. In fact, in verse 24, when they do it, they say to God, show us which one you have chosen. So in their mind, the slate was man's, but the choice was God's. They give give God two, and they say, who have you chosen? 
But, but once again, here we are discovering that in Acts chapter 1, the pause has a purpose. The pause has a purpose. One of the purposes of the pause was to get leadership in order. And when I think about this and I think about applying this, I think there are a couple of wrong ideas that can often take root in the church when it goes to appointing leaders. I think one of the wrong ideas is that sometimes we can think, you know, when God really moves, if God were to really move, leadership would become unnecessary. Because God would be our leader, and human leadership would no longer be necessary. Well, let's, let's just take that idea, and let's, let's measure it against what's going on here in Acts. Remember, Christ was just among them, and Christ has moved in a powerful way. The ascended Christ has been among them for 40 days and teaching them. According to verse 3, he was teaching them specifically about what the kingdom of God was all about and what it was like. And there was some, for some reason, the result of all of that was not to dismantle the concept of leadership. In fact, the result of that is that leadership is not only retained, but it's reinforced in Acts chapter 1. So, though according to verse 15, there are 120 people gathered, there are, there's still this smaller group of the 11 among the 120 that represent the leadership of the group. And even in that group of 11, there is one who stands up to publicly interpret what God was saying through the Scriptures, and that was Peter. So, in order for Jesus to continue to, well, using the words from verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, verse 1, continue to do and teach, as, which is what the book of Acts is, it's Jesus continuing to do and teach, in order for the Spirit of God to continue the work of Jesus in doing and teaching, leaders needed to be identified. Leaders needed to be in place. That's another important reason why they were drawing lots to replace Judas. So that's the first wrong idea. You know, when God really moves, leadership will no longer be necessary. Here, here's a second one, and, and sadly, this one is even more painful for some of us. And the, the second wrong idea is, you know what? I've seen too many leaders fail. It's happened to me. It happened in our church. So from now on, I'm leading myself. Or I'm only letting Jesus lead me. I'm not going to be allowing leaders to lead me. And it's true. Leaders do fail. There are ways I believe I have failed as a leader. There are ways I believe I have disappointed people. There are mistakes that I have made that has inflicted difficulty on people. But, but for some reason in Scripture, the failure and flaws of leaders never eliminates the need for leaders. And, and when it comes to Acts chapter 1, we have to remember that part of the backdrop of this passage is what I would describe as the ultimate leadership Failure. I mean, is there a bigger leadership failure than Judas himself? Is there a bigger leadership failure than actually becoming an instrument of Satan through which God himself is betrayed and killed? Isn't that like the mother of all failures? And actually, when we look a little closer at the disciples, Judas was not the only sinner there. 
I mean, Peter denied Christ three times. Thomas doubting. James and John just throwing everybody under the bus and saying, Lord, can we be the ones that sit at your right hand? If you're the 120 that are there, what confidence do you have in leadership at all? And yet, for some reason, God doesn't dismantle it. Even though that if there was ever a group that had a legitimate reason to jettison the idea of leadership and reach for a whole new model of doing things, it was the 120. But what Acts chapter 1 does, what the pause does, is it reinforces the importance of leadership. In fact, it becomes one of the purposes of the pause. And Acts chapter 1 displays a pattern that that was sown throughout the entirety of Scripture and continues through the entirety of the New Testament, which is in moments when God's people need definition, God is faithful to raise up leaders. In moments when leaders fail, God still appoints leaders. In order for the church to be established in Acts chapter 2, God must reconstitute leaders. In order for the mission to go forward throughout Acts, God works to send leaders. I don't get that. I don't understand it. But you need to know that this is part of the reason why your leaders here are so aggressive about training interns, training leaders. Because God links the mission of the church and the direction of the church to the leaders of the church. Part of the reason we're getting together this Thursday to train the elders more is because God links the mission of the church and the direction of the church to the leaders of the church. Part of the reason we're so grateful for our group of fellowship group leaders is because God expresses the care for the church through the fellowship leaders in the church. In fact, in just a moment, Paul's going to come forward and he's going to invite the fellowship group leaders forward and we're going we're to recognize them and, and pray for them and, and commission them in a whole new year. And, and as they stand, here, here's, here's what I want you to think about. The, just recognize that leaders like that in a church are, are an expression of, of the love of God to his people. It's an expression of God loving us. And I want you to also recognize that, that your leaders, pastors, elders, fellowship group leaders, consider this local church as an expression of love to us. Whether we are in a season of clear purpose or whether we are in a season of of perplexing pauses, it is a joy and an honor to serve you. It is a joy and an honor to lead you. It is a joy and an honor to be on this mission together. We love you, and we thank God for you.